Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Pick up where we left off last time. Looking this morning, verses 23 to 27. Matthew 21, 23. It was uh, Finley Peter Dunn, I found, looking it up. American writer in the early 1900s who first spoke of someone comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. That's what Jesus did. And I think that's often what he has in store for us. Comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. Just two weeks ago, we saw Jesus cleanse the temple in Jerusalem. He drove out the money changers and the sellers of livestock, and then he took his place in the temple as if it belonged to him. And as you can imagine, this did not set well with the Jewish leaders. So today we come to the first of several confrontations between Jesus and those leaders. Let me read uh, the text for today, 23 to 27. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they ask. Who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, well, I will ask you, also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's, John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask them, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. This is a very brief text, but let me suggest two lessons it holds for us. We're going to take the second one first. God made Jesus clearly known. God made Jesus clearly known. There's something inside us that makes us love to play the agnostic. You know what agnostic is, right? The word comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is the word for knowledge, to which is added the prefix ah, that is without without knowledge. So the agnostic is one who takes the position that we just cannot know, especially in regard to things of God. <clears throat> oh, that sounds so learned. As if, we, as if we have so much knowledge that it's just impossible to boil it down to yes or no. It sounds so sophisticated as if it is beneath us to engage in a controversial question about God. It sounds so elitist, as if we are too important to involve ourselves in such matters. That's where the Jewish leaders ended up in their confrontation with Jesus, saying, we just do not know where John came from. But it wasn't an honest answer. It was a political answer. They had asked Jesus about his authority, as we'll talk about later, 
So he asked them about John's baptism. Was it from God or was it from men? And now they're caught on the horns of a dilemma. They don't believe that John's work was from God, not for one minute. But if they say that, the people will probably riot. One of the other gospel accounts says, the people will probably stone us. <laughs> for the people understood clearly that John was a prophet. On the other hand, if they placate the crowd and say, well, of course, John was a great prophet, they open themselves to the question, why didn't you believe him? So they take the agnostic position. We just don't know, Jesus. We don't know where he was from. And in response, Jesus refuses to tell them by what authority he acted. But you see, this is not just a clever debate. These issues are connected. God made Jesus clearly known, and he used John the baptizer to do that. Think about how Jesus' identity had been revealed. It began, when we read the Gospels, we go through this every Advent. It began with one of these temple priests, a man named Zechariah. The angel Gabriel appeared to him as he ministered in the temple and announced that he would have a son. This son named John would be the promised forerunner of the Messiah, the one who, like Elijah, would come and prepare the way for the Lord. Now, is it even possible that none of these priests had ever heard about that? That none of them had ever heard what happened to their fellow priest, Zechariah, when he was in the temple? More likely, there was no one who had not heard about that. God was making Jesus clearly known. Then before John was born, while he was still in the womb, he leaped and was filled with the Spirit when Jesus, still in his mother's womb, came into the room. No one had ever heard about that experience of the priest Zechariah's wife. Really, had Zechariah never told anyone about that? Had the word never gotten around in the priestly circles? Of course they had heard that. God was making Jesus' appearance clearly known. A few years later, when Jesus was 12 years old, where do we find him? In the temple, talking to the Jewish leaders and impressing them with his wisdom. Had they forgotten all about that? They knew God had sent someone very special. God was making Jesus clearly known. And then when John grew up and went into the wilderness and began to preach, it did not go unnoticed. Mark reports the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Luke tells us that a delegation of Pharisees went specifically to investigate him. And what did they hear from John? They heard John say, I am not the Messiah. I am only the messenger that Isaiah promised, preparing the way for the Lord who was coming. I only baptize with water, but when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Look, there he is, this Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
You see, these Jewish leaders had known all along what was happening. They knew well the Old Testament scriptures, which were being fulfilled. They knew John. They knew John's father personally. They were there when John preached. They saw the Lord prepare hearts. In short, God had made both John and Jesus clearly known. Oh, but it didn't stop there. When Jesus began his public ministry, according to John's gospel, something that happened early on was that a Pharisee, one of these leaders, a Pharisee named Nicodemus came and had a personal interview with Jesus who explained exactly what he had come to do. Then early on, one of the very first miracles, Jesus healed a paralytic in the presence of these leaders. Remember the man let down through the roof because it was such a crowd. And Jesus made the point of his authority to forgive the man's sins. Oh, these leaders had not been locked up in a closet when all these things were taking place. They were always keeping an eye on Jesus. And so they had seen Jesus cast out demons. They had seen him heal the sick and the lame. They had seen him raise people from the dead. They had heard the clear word from the Father that he proclaimed. God made Jesus clearly known. His coming had been foretold by the prophets whose writings these men were experts in. His identity had been validated by God speaking from heaven. They heard him as John baptized him. And Jesus' identity had been repeatedly authenticated through signs and miracles. You see, these leaders were playing politics with Jesus. They knew he was, who he was and what authority he had. They just didn't like him. And so they refused to submit. And in the end, it was God that they refused to submit to. And folks, the same thing goes on today. I'm not saying everybody knows what these leaders knew. That's not true. But everyone knows something. They at least know a creator exists by looking around them at the creation. In fact, God says he personally made sure. He made us in such a way that we recognize the creator's hand when we see it. And that piece of knowledge brings a responsibility with us with it for us to seek him out. Oh, God has not kept Jesus coming and his identity a secret. You don't automatically know about Jesus by seeing the creation, but Jesus' life is a matter of public record. It's recorded by eyewitness accounts in the Bible, which God has preserved against all odds for centuries, and which has now been translated into almost every language in the world. In addition, missionaries have gone to almost every nation in the world, bearing testimony to this Jesus by their words and by their lives, caring for the sick and educating the ignorant and freeing people from oppression and announcing forgiveness and eternal life to those who know Jesus. You see, Jesus has not just been playing some game of wits with these Jewish leaders. They had been given truth and had rejected what they knew. Jesus was not about to let them go, let them off 
as if it were impossible to know. And so when they would not acknowledge what they knew to be true, Jesus said, neither will I answer you. This morning I tell you, there's no place for an agnostic. It's a very popular position in our day. All kinds of people will say, well, I just don't know. I don't think you can know for sure. God says, yes, you can. God has made his truth clear at some level. We either believe him, not by a blind leap of faith, but by looking at some evidence. Or we refuse to believe him in the face of that evidence and thus heap judgment upon ourselves. But God has made Jesus clearly known. Which brings us back to the first lesson that we ought to learn. That is that Jesus has the right to upend your world. Jesus has the right to upend your world. We all like to be in control of our little world. We work hard to get things just like we like them. We find ways to get rid of things that make us uncomfortable. We go to great lengths to organize our life in such a way that everything is just right. And I've noticed that the older we get, the more that is true. But God has a way of upsetting our comfortable little worlds. Perhaps we lose our job and our savings disappears. We face some unforeseen trouble, some disaster. Perhaps we get sick, our child gets sick, our marriage comes unglued. Whatever the problem, when our life gets turned upside down, our response to God is often, who do you think you are? What right do you have to do this to me? That's exactly what the Jewish leaders thought that day in the temple. Let me remind you who these men were. These were men of some note. There were these three groups, the chief priest, the priests were the ones that served in the temple. The chief priests were the ones in charge. You became a priest by being born in a priestly family, so this authority was inherited. Then there were the teachers of the law. These were the theologians and lawyers of the day. They interpreted God's law and established proper applications of it. Their authority was gained by their years of expertise, their years of study. And third, there were the elders of the people. These were the heads of the leading families. They were the wise old men, the patriarchs of society. They got their authority from their economic and social standing in the community. Together, representatives from these three groups made up the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, which was the kind of the executive and the legislative and the judicial branch of government all together. The ruling council in the land. In other words, these were the officials in charge of the temple. And everything that went on in the temple. So you can imagine how Jesus' disruption of the temple routine upended their world. He threw people out. He overturned the tables He threw of the money changers. Uh, which all of these activities had been authorized by the chief priests. And then... He kind of de facto commandeered space in the temple to teach. A role normally reserved for the teachers of the law. You can imagine how Jesus' actions 
challenged their authority. So it's not surprising that they came to him him demanding, tell us by what authority you do these things. Who gave you this authority? Take it at face value, that's a legitimate question. But Jesus knew it could not be taken at face value, for as we've seen, God had already made Jesus clearly known to them. Because he was God's Messiah, God the Son, Jesus had the authority. He had the right to do as he pleased, even if it upended their comfortable world. He would exercise his authority to do the Father's will, whether or not it upset their traditions. So what was the Father's will? What was Jesus' intention? Well, he was not and is not now just being mean. He's not like that. He does not upend anybody's world just to show he can. Instead, Jesus was orchestrating all history for the coming of God's kingdom. You see, you see what seems so orderly and under control to these leaders was never going to produce what God had designed. It was never going to produce the saving of sinners. It was never going to produce bringing all nations to the Lord. It would forever be what it was, expedient religion. Lots of emphasis on the beautiful temple and the impressive priesthood, people uh, uh, fulfilling acts of piety, sometimes in good faith, leaders exercising control of them, largely for their own glory, people the people's Jewishness being continually reaffirmed, stoking their pride in being God's special people, and God kept nearly outside his own place, lest he trouble their comfortable world. But God had much bigger plans. He was not against the people or the priesthood or the temple, but he, his revealed purposes had been largely ignored. God intended to bless the whole world through his Messiah. God's plan was to redeem his fallen creatures and renew the whole cursed creation. His plan was not just to make the Jews comfortable in their beautiful worship, but to fulfill what was pictured in their worship to bring the people of every nation into glory with himself. In fact, God's plan was so great that it even included Jesus' rejection by these leaders, for through his rejection and his death and his resurrection, God's saving plan would be accomplished. Make no mistake, God had, Jesus had every right to upend their comfortable world in favor of God's plans. And folks, When he upends your world, that also fits his plans. If anyone ever had the responsibility, the authority, to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, surely the Lord has that authority. 
So he is now working all things together, both good and bad, both comfort and affliction, in order to bring his chosen ones to glory. If you are a proud, controlling person, don't be surprised if God upends your world so that you might see your helplessness and learn to trust him. If you've diligently spent the money and taken the time to make your life absolutely secure, don't be surprised if God upends your security so that you learn to rest in him. If you have risen to prominence in the church by your devout piety and righteousness, don't be surprised if God upends your pious life so that you can see that you are no better than any other sinner cast upon God's mercy. Whatever unforeseen trouble comes into your life, don't be surprised. God is working on you. God is changing you. He is stripping away everything you have ever trusted in order that you might know what it means to trust him alone. That is the repeated promise of the scriptures, that our present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We know that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. James tells us the same thing. Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of all kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Peter says the same thing. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. You just rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised if God afflicts you in your comfort. But this morning I would also comfort you who are afflicted. Jesus has the right to upend your world as he did the Jewish world. But be assured, his purposes are good. They're not evil. If God is for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. His grace is sufficient for whatever comes your way every day. He will never leave you or forsake you. He is working in you both to want to and to do his will. He has given us his spirit to comfort and to empower and to give us wisdom. And in the midst of all our affliction, Jesus tells us he's praying for us. He's praying for us. There's no question about the outcome of the lives of those who trust in Jesus. We will live and reign with him forever. For the sake of his glory, for the, for the success of his kingdom, he has the right, when he deems it necessary, to upend our little worlds. These chief priests, teachers of the law and elders of Israel, 
were active in worshiping God. Some of them taught the scriptures. Some of them offered the sacrifices required by God's law. Some were leaders of the people. But they would not listen to God's clear announcement of the coming of his son. They would not submit to the son's authority. And in the end, that's all that mattered. And that is still all that matters. You can sit here and worship stiff with with rebellion against the Lord Jesus. You can piously eat the Lord's Supper while believing nothing. You could be here every Sunday and be no different from those Jewish leaders. But God knows. He has made Jesus clearly known. You're responsible for what you know. And he has given Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth. So you are blessed if he sees fit to upend your life to teach you to trust him more. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we hate it when our life is just upended. Lord, we who truly believe in you just do not like it. And we so, it's so difficult for us. Help us to trust you more than we trust our own security and our own comfort and our own wisdom and our own plans. Help us to submit to you when we like it and when we don't. Help us to never, never turn on you and rebel against you and join these leaders dare to say, by what authority do you think you're doing this to me? Help us not to forget that you are the Lord and we're not. Amen. Print it in your bulletin as an affirmation of faith, if you'll find that. This is simply a few verses from Hebrews chapter 1, which is set